Some stories you just don't need to sensationalise, and this was one of them. This is a forgotten front line in a hidden battle. Hello, how are you? It is where the old and frail find themselves in the fight of their lives. Nick Martin of Sky News was one of the first journalists to report the coronavirus crisis inside care homes. This is what a single day inside one looks like. They are dying here. Coronavirus has ripped through these wards at frightening pace. His reporting was eventually praised by Health Secretary Matt Hancock, who promised to increase access to testing and send more PPE to care homes. We had daily reviews with the doctor, daily clinical observations, and unfortunately, um, she lost her fight for, with COVID last night. I asked Nick, who started his career on the Whitley Bay Guardian, Newcastle Chronicle, Journal and Sunderland Echo, to explain the background to his reporting. In early March, as a news organisation, we were trying to explore all of the avenues which would enable us to report what was happening across the United Kingdom. And at that point, we were being told that everything was going to be happening in the hospitals. It was the critical care wards, the intensive care wards, um, accident emergency. And so actually, in early March, actually, end of February, early March, a lot of my resources were going into trying to get access to NHS hospitals, talking to individual hospital trusts, NHS England, Public Health England, about how we can show the reality behind a rising, steadily rising numbers and how that was translating into hospitals. It was all about hospitals. Uh, on our foreign news, we'd already had our chief correspondent, Stuart Ramsey, reporting from Italy three or four weeks earlier absolutely shocking pictures of the reality that would be facing Britain just a few weeks later. So my priority at that time was to get inside hospitals and try and tell the story of how all of these cases would translate into uh, hospital admissions. And that was proving very difficult, actually. We were trying to get access to all sorts of hospitals, but the NHS were pushing back. And in the end, I decided to look uh, at the story in a little bit of a broader sense. Okay, hospitals are where it's happening, but who's connected to the hospitals? Where are those stories going to occur if we can't get into a hospital ward? And it struck me that a lot of care homes were intrinsically linked to hospitals. In fact, they use care homes, the hospitals, as overflows when hospitals get busy. In normal times outside of a pandemic, Hospitals use care homes as a, as a step-down overflow. And so I started to talk in early March to care home providers. And what I got back was a wall of kind of, you need to talk to us because this is all starting to get quite real. Let me just pause you at that point, Nick. Why were you getting pushback from the NHS and the hospitals? Was that just a practical thing? Sorry, we've, we've got enough on our plate here. We, we can't let you in. I think back then... The NHS were aware of the power of the image 
that would come from a very busy critical care ward. We'd already seen it, as I said, in our reporting in Italy of how powerful an image that could be. To see people on uh, in masks, um, finding it very difficult to breathe. And it was for them, I think, an issue of, well, who do we let in? Which news organisation do we let in? And the, you know, the bare fact of the matter is that the NHS at that time were managing the media requests very, very strictly. And they had an idea of who they would want to let into critical care wards. And I was told in no uncertain terms that it would be a particular broadcaster to hit a particular bulletin on a particular day. Now, I realised at that point that we need to broaden our search for these stories, and that's what's led us to care homes. But um, at that time, in early March, it was all about getting into hospitals. I've been looking and reporting on care homes and the system that supports care homes, which you call social care. I've been reporting on that for, for many years, primarily because social care in the United Kingdom is a huge policy area for all political parties and has been really for the last 20 or so years as our population has been getting older. We've been trying to grapple with the issues that that uh, presents itself with. It's great that we've got an ageing population, but not so great that we've got a system that can't cope with them. So social care as a piece of policy has been something that I've been looking at for years. And in the run-up to the last general election, we started to look at social care because political parties ever since Labour got in in 1997 have been promising to reform social care. The problem is it's very, very, very expensive to reform social care. So I was looking at all those political promises that had been made and that was culminating in a project last November where we were spending a lot of time in care homes. Fast forward a few months, Covid raised its head and I already had a, a huge amount of contact with care homes. So in many ways I was lucky that we'd already had a very strong relationship with care homes going into the pandemic. You know, the real, um, the real secret to, uh, to reporting a story well, and this isn't just care homes, this is any story at any level, whether it be local level or international level, is understanding the subject. If you don't understand the subject, how it's affected by all sorts of other issues, then it's very hard to really accurately report it. So what I'd say for anyone listening is this is a classic example of understanding your subject because over the last few months I'd learned a lot about care homes. Not the most exciting subject in the world, but as a journalist we ha I had to understand it. Who comes in? Who pays? How's it funded? Who funds it? What happens when your money runs out? Who gets care? Are there different levels of care? All these things I already really understood going into the pandemic which is why when I started to look at care homes, when we realised hospitals were going to be very difficult to report in, I understand the dynamic between care homes and hospitals. And it just became obvious to me that whatever happens in hospitals will happen in care homes. And, you know, I was right. We were being told in the end of February that care homes need not worry about coronavirus. The government's own official guidance was that um, by end of February, it was, quote, highly unlikely that there would be transmission within care homes. Can you, can you imagine that now, knowing what we know now? That was at the end of February. So care homes were going, OK, well, there is a bit of community transmission. That is, the, the virus is passing through communities, but we don't really need to worry about that so much. They were being told that 
face masks weren't really necessary. And they were being told, you know, it is pretty much business as usual. And that's what the government were telling care homes. Care homes are very sceptical of this. They know how quickly viruses spread and they know because they're connected to hospitals very closely that this was a risk to them. So the government on one hand was saying it's business as usual, but I was getting a lot of scepticism from care providers, which made me want to dig a little bit deeper into care homes. Fast forward to the middle of March. This is before lockdown, but transmission is now starting to pick up. Cases are now starting to pick up. The government's advice suddenly changes. It says care homes are now going to have to play an important part in the what they call the national effort, that they're going to have to accept discharges from hospitals, that they'll get extra money for that, that they'll even get help with personal protective equipment. So care homes go, here we go, we'll play our part, this is good. But they were fundamentally let down by the government. And, you know, these are this is borne out by the advice and the records. The PPE, by and large, didn't arrive. The funding was hard to get to the care homes who needed it. Tests were not available then for care homes. So they were starting to fight this pandemic with their hands tied behind their back. And it's that point, middle of March, that we start to really hone in on care homes. Because it's important to realise when a story is running fast, it's important to realise when you're on the right story when you know something's about to happen, to get in before it happens so you can actually witness the results for yourself. And what were the practical challenges of just getting into care homes to do this kind of reporting? I knew that we should be inside care homes and I knew that was going to be uh, very difficult on a logistical, practical level, but also you know, care homes are going to want to allow a camera crew in to show something that's potentially going to be really bad for their business. I mean, no care homeowner wanted to show the world that they were rife with COVID. It's just not good for business. Care homes are private businesses. And I had to try and balance that with the needs of a lot of care providers who were saying, it's all kicking off in this care home. We'd like to let you in, but I'm just worried about the effect that it's going to have. And so there are some very, very careful moments of consideration that we need to embark on before we just roll in with a camera I booked myself and a few of the team on an infection control course with an expert in virus viruses who'd covered Ebola in Africa um, because I wanted to make sure that we could protect ourselves going into a place of high virus concentration, but we'd also protect people who were in the care home, uh, not just the staff, but the residents themselves. So at Sky News, we sent a lot of people on, the, on these infection control courses, which were very valuable. Next was, which care home are we going to go into? And we'd had a very strong relationship with a care home in Sheffield. It had a a huge NHS contract um, for patients who aren't quite ready to go home but still need attention, so they would be sent to that care home. And it was around uh, the beginning of April when cases probably were reaching exponential increments, when cases were at their highest that we decided to go into Newfield Care Home in Sheffield and we spent two days in that home. Uh, The owner knew that this wasn't going to look good for her, but she was driven by a sense of we need to show people what was happening. And at the time, film crews were not in care homes. So I think we were the only film crew in a care home during the peak of the pandemic. And um, we had to have some very strict risk assessments Um, But not just the practicalities, but you are 
constantly thinking, how am I going to tell this story? How do we maintain our sensitivity? What happens if relatives are watching? What are we trying to say? It's important to get the tone right, not to get excited and carried away with the potential of an in inverted commas, a big story. These are all considerations which affect us as journalists when we're about to embark on a story which we think or suspect might be significant. And so it's important to take a moment, understand the story, take a breath and just report what you see. And Nick, can I ask what sort of conversations were you having with your news desk all along in terms of managing their expectations? Well, this is a, a tricky balance because as a reporter, you want to get your story commissioned. So you give it some, you, you, you try and sell it to the news editors. But it is really important not to oversell stories. Sell it to the news editor just enough to get you on the story. But uh, overselling a story is a really dangerous position to be in because what happens if the story falls short? You only really get a few occasions in your career where that's allowed to happen. And so I think it's about trust between me as a reporter and my editor, who was 100% behind this story from the very start. He knew that it was a potentially an important piece of journalism that we were about to, to try and tell. And, you know, there is no better way, there's no more accurate reporting than first-hand eyewitness reporting, which we were about to do. And so after all the risk assessments and the chat about protecting ourselves and the crew and everyone else, it was decided on a Saturday afternoon to enter Newfield, which by now had a whole top floor taken over with elderly frail residents who had COVID-19. As soon as we walked through the door, I was told that the whole of the top floor was um, 100% COVID positive. Each room, uh, 30 rooms, had an elderly patient in there who had COVID-19. Now, that was quite shocking to see. So what I thought we would do, we would spend the first few hours just seeing what how the place operated, uh, not get in the way of anyone so early, like straight straight through the door, lights, camera action. It's not not often how it works really in, in a piece of television like this. I sat on a chair really for two hours in the in the corridor as Andy, the cameraman, sort of followed the nurses, um, kept his distance, let them just do their work so that we could observe what they were doing without getting in their way, without giving them a, a sense of what we were after, uh, without prejudicing or prejudging what we were there to do. I had no idea what this story was going to be like. So I thought we'll let the camera do the observing first. And also there's a case of people need to get used to the camera as well. So for two hours, we just followed the nurses and the carers doing what they do best, which is this wonderful, caring nursing played out in, in front of the camera. But it did strike me very early on that there were people who were dying while we were there. And so you are now thinking about how are we going to tell this story? How do we keep this sense of balance the tone has to be right because we're trying to report something that no one else is reporting in, in the UK that day. And so my mind is worrying about we must tell this story properly and we must not sensationalise. Some stories you just don't need to sensationalise and this was one of them. 
any story has to have at its heart people. That goes for whether you're reporting on your local council or whether you're reporting around the world on global events. News stories are nothing without people. So one of the first things we think about when we're on a story is who are my main characters? Who are my main storytellers? I'm a storyteller, I'm the reporter figure, but I'm often not, I often don't play as big a part in the story as some of the other characters do. So we're looking at who is going to help me tell this story. And that's one of the key early on decisions when you arrive on a story that you need to get right. Who are my allies here that will tell the story? Tell it better than I will because they're the ones who do this job. So I start to look at the carers and the nurses and the ladies who clean the rooms and the guy who uh, works on the reception. And they can start to help me build up the story. But also there's another character in this story and that's the people who are cared for, the elderly residents in the rooms. Now that poses a whole other raft of problems. These are people who are ill, they're vulnerable, they, they may not ha be able to give consent to have their story shown. And there was one gentleman in particular called John, who appeared to me was very ill and would then go on to die actually in the next few days. He died after the first piece that we'd done had been broadcast. Want to be here anymore. And a delicate conversation begins. I want to get out. Oh, to what do you want to sit in your chair? Yeah. I want to get out. Of this place, you mean? Yeah. I want to get out of here. Claudia. And so here we have uh, this very touching moment between him and a carer, where he's actually pleading to leave the care home. He's very scared. And she's obviously telling him he can't leave. He's, he's got coronavirus. And so we had to find a way of, yes, anonymizing him. He can't be identified. The man's just not in a position to give his consent. We have to completely anonymize him while still getting his story across. And that's very difficult. In the end, a few days later, I spoke to his family. We did a follow-up story. And we heard a lot more about John. But in those very early cases sometimes the people who you want to report on aren't able to talk to you and that means you have to give a huge amount of consideration to whether they are consenting to be in the piece. Okay so you broadcast that report and that could have been the end of it you could have I suppose decided to go off and report some other aspect of the pandemic but you didn't so tell me what compelled you to carry on telling this story? Well at the time the government was holding daily news conferences at Downing Street and they were generally chaired by the Prime Minister or the Health Secretary Matt Hancock or in some cases the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab for when Boris Johnson was in hospital ill. Those Downing Street press briefings were essential in trying to hold the government to account. Five journalists today were allowed to go via Zoom onto that press conference and ask a question about testing or or tracing or numbers or deaths or fatalities. And I was asked by my head of uh, news, John Riley, to go into that Downing Street press conference and present what we'd found at Newfield Care Home. And so I did. And at that time, it occurred to me that care homes were fighting coronavirus in the dark. Now, a lot of this talking now in where we are now, we know that these were problems. But back in March, we didn't realise the extent to which no tests for carers or residents in care homes was a problem. Hospitals 
discharging patients with coronavirus into care homes w- was a problem. Lack of PPE was a problem. And I had witnessed that in a care home and had presented that to Matt Hancock and said, this surely isn't right. And it was a good example of a journalist witnessing something for him or herself and taking that and speaking truth to power. And that is really um, the essence of what we do as reporters. We witness things, we take it to those who are uh, in power and we say, look, what, about, what do you think about this? And that applies pressure on government and perhaps uh, forces a change. That's all we can ever ask for in any of our careers. And in the days after that press conference, Matt Hancock announced tests for carers and residents. And shortly after that, patients being discharged from hospital without coronavirus tests was banned and, uh, and tests had to be carried out. And so I'd like to think, and I've got no way of knowing whether our report did move the needle or not, but I'd like to think that that was a moment where we were able to say, look, this isn't working and you need to change it fast. Question at all, but I wonder if you will take this opportunity to apologise to those families of loved ones who died in care homes because the government didn't properly protect them. That's The thing is, Nick, I think that's... Um, I think that's unreasonable as a question, actually. Um, I, and I know you care an awful lot about this, but um, from the start, uh, we know, we knew that there was a very significant challenge with care homes. Not least because I wasn't trying to put the Mr Hancock in a corner. And I said this isn't meant to be a gotcha type question because it genuinely wasn't. It was a question based on what I had seen. Now, if we go back to what I said at the start, the government in March said that care homes need to play a vital role in the national effort. And in payment for that, they said three things. They'd get extra funding, they'd get PPE supplies, and they'd get tested. Now, what we know in March and April is that none of those things happened to the extent that would have protected care homes. So my argument for asking the health secretary whether he would like to apologise for people who died in care homes was based on the fact that from all the evidence I'd seen, care homes had been let down by the government and the government had broken their promises. He thought that was an unreasonable question, but I think perhaps time will tell whether it was or not. There's still a story to be told. There's always going to be a story to be told. And the care homes, the coronavirus impact on care home story is really in two halves. It's the short-term stuff. It's the money that the government has given local councils to try and support care homes through what might be a really difficult winter. And we're already seeing a second wave now. So that's money for PPE, thermometer checks, um, isolation wards, um, all this kind of stuff. That's the short-term stuff. And a lot of care homes have had quite a bit of money over the last few months and are saying, well, you know, it's, it is helping to try and protect some of the elderly residents in care homes from further infection. But really the proper story lies in the long-term stuff, and that is the long-term reform to social care. The, so if we're, we're sort of fixing the roof at the moment, but really we need to go to the foundation of the building to realise that actually it's starting to crumble at the bottom. Um, Social care is underfunded. We're spending £400 million less this year on social care than we did 10 years ago. And so it is an area that each government, going back to Tony Blair, 
Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson have all been saying the same thing, that we will we must find a way of, of funding social care. That hasn't happened. And so what we've seen over the last few years is um, care homes have become quite fragile. Not all care homes earn millions of pounds. A lot of them are in working class areas funded by local councils. The cost of caring people, they would say, is outstripped by the cost of running buildings. And so what coronavirus has done is, in many ways, the straw that broke the camel's back for care homes that are already in a fragile state. What we saw after the peak of the pandemic, because a lot of people died, people don't want to send their loved ones to care homes and the hospitals were quite quiet, is that care homes suddenly became very quiet. Now, rather like hotels, that's bad for business. And so they're trying to figure out how do we stay afloat if we've got no one in the care homes? And so what we're starting to see is care homes close because of under-occupancy. In fact, more care homes have closed already this year, 275 this year, than did in the entire of 2019. And it's worried that when all those government support packages are removed and tapered away, that 2021 we'll see more care homes close. That has an impact on me, you, everyone who's listening, because we all have a loved one who might need care. We might even need care ourselves. So the problem is that coronavirus has prized open an already bitter wound and that if funding isn't going to occur soon, then the care sector might collapse. Certainly those vulnerable care homes that haven't got you know, the wealth of money that you see in um, very wealthy areas. And so coronavirus has exposed that as a problem and we will have to keep an eye on that in the coming months. We've just spent about two months in the same care home that we did that first report in. Fast forward to June, it's empty. July, empty. August, the auditors are called in. September, it closes. October, those carers who we saw on the front line fighting the pandemic have been made redundant. Now that's a story. It's a story of irony of how someone can go through the pandemic and fight hard and look at what their payment is. It's redundancy. So I decided to make a documentary called Death of a Care Home. Again, it's not a cheery subject, but we have to try and explore the impact that coronavirus has had long-term on care homes. Well, thanks, Nick, for explaining all that to us. When the pandemic is finally behind us in the rearview mirror, how do you think you'll look back on your reporting of those care homes in the spring of 2020? Well, I'm in my 26th year as a journalist. I started my journalism career in Newcastle and my editor back then always said that people have to form the very centre of every story that you do. And uh, that's something that we all need to remember, whether we're old hacks or whether we are coming through this industry. You know, all the big stories, all the important stories have to have people at their heart. I'm not that interested in what politicians have to say. Um, my main interest is hearing about how decisions made by politicians impact on their everyday lives. And that's the type of journalism that I do. And I've spent many years doing it. Uh, I think what happened in care homes was a scandal. I think we'll learn from it a bit. I think a lot of the errors that were made will be made again. And I think the foundation of changing how care homes were affected is, is going to have to be 
addressed by politicians sooner or later. It was a big story. I felt a huge weight of responsibility telling it. It kept me awake at night, which a lot of stories have never done, uh, because you have relatives at home who can't see their loved ones. You're in this privileged position to go in and to be able to see them, and I felt that. I felt guilty about that. And so as a journalist, you can only take your place in a story and try and tell it the right way, with integrity, accuracy, and with the right tone, and never let a big story overcome you. Never get too excited that you might be on a big story because ultimately people are watching it and they will draw their own conclusions about, about the kind of things that you see. But fundamentally, every story that I've ever done and any story that any journalist should ever do should always put people at the centre of that story so that we can understand how all of this big picture political stuff impacts on their lives. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab, supported by Newcastle University.